Welcome to this new thinking for a new world podcast of the Talberg Foundation. In this episode, Ahmed Reda Chami, President of the Economic, Social and Environmental Council of Morocco, and Alan Stoga, Chair of the Talberg Foundation, discuss the challenges facing Morocco as well as the rest of Africa. Like everywhere else, the country must cope with the potentially overwhelming health, economic and political consequences of the pandemic. But unlike most places, it has a well-designed, focused strategy to mitigate the worst of what is happening and possibly to position itself and the rest of Africa for a better future. Ahmed, we are talking at a time when the COVID pandemic is still raging and as the economic consequences of lockdown are only starting to be felt. What does all this mean for Morocco and for Africa? All of us have been looking at, you know, the impacts of the COVID and also what should be the response to it. But I can say really without a doubt that this COVID will have very negative impacts on us. I mean, whatever the response is. First of all, on the economy side, the uh, Morocco's government has put in place many uh, measures, you know, and similar to what has happened in in different countries, uh, be it like strong fiscal, you know, uh, measures, uh, monetary measures. uh, And of course, it's really too soon uh, to to evaluate the impact of all of this. But uh, as you know, all countries in Africa have limited resources and are not in the same position as the US, who can basically print money, because that's a worldwide money, or the EU, for example. So my expectation is that many of the small and medium businesses will disappear because of the crisis. The banks have given them more you know, credits. But if you have already you know, SMEs that have uh, big debts in their balance sheets and you give them, we are giving them more debt, then uh, you're not solving, you know, really the problem. You're just delaying it. Uh, in parallel, even if you help the uh, offer side, then what happens on the demand side? Because people need to consume the goods that will be produced in the coming weeks by those uh, SMEs. Uh, and we don't have the resources, just like you did with the helicopter money in the U.S., to give you know a few thousand dollars to every individual, so he can go out and uh, start uh, you know buying goods and, and products. I'm sure you are correct. Morocco will not escape the global recession. How will that hit ordinary people in your country? Inequalities will widen, and uh, there are many reasons for that here in Morocco. And I can say without being really wrong that the same situation applies to many African countries. So the first reason why the inequalities will widen is because we have a large informal sector. You guys don't know what what an informal sector here (laughs) in your countries. Here, you have to understand that uh, there are more people working in the informal sector than in the formal sector. You have to understand that there are these small shops, individuals, uh, auto entrepreneurs, you know, being that work in restaurant, in the restaurant business, 
in the utilities, in maintenance, in artwork. And they're not, they don't have any uh, social net. Uh, so the government has tried to help them during this crisis by, by giving them, like for every uh, single household, uh, the government has succeeded in sending them, and you're going to laugh, around, you know, $100 a month. So just to keep them alive. So the second reason why I believe the uh, inequalities will widen is because the access to technology is not pervasive here in Morocco, as you can imagine. So if you take online education, the tele-education that has happened during all these months of lockdown, well, the, the, wealthy, the wealthy or even the middle class have access to uh, you know, a computer, they have access to a, a 4G uh, network. So their kids were able to uh, keep on with the lessons, with the courses that were given by their teachers. Although it was not a two-way online education because you need more broadband for that, but at least you keep up with the programs of uh, every level. If you're not, if you don't have the chance to have that access, then guess what? You know, uh, next year, these students will be at a bigger disadvantage, at a, you know, bigger disadvantage than they were already to, you know, this year. So, uh, that's why I'm saying that inequalities will widen. So, in my view, it will take, it will take us some years to get back to the level where we were in 2019. In order for God to help you, you help yourself first. Ahmed, those are huge challenges for your country. Now let's go to the larger Africa picture. What should Africa do to help itself? So Africans have to really do a lot of things. And if you allow me, I can talk about few things that you know Africans have to do. First, uh, education, education, and education. We have definitely to improve our education system because uh, it will be key in the future. The world is moving to uh, a knowledge economy globally. So uh, in order for you to find solutions locally, yeah, you need to be better educated. If you want to participate to the world economy, you have to be better educated. So this is one thing that is absolutely key. The second thing that was demonstrated to everyone is that healthcare is not such a, you know, futile or, you know, it's not a irrelevant sector, you know? So when you pay the uh, soccer players, huge amount of money and you underpay your medical staff, then my, maybe one day you might need your medical staff more than your soccer players, you know? And so investment in healthcare is paramount. How do we in Morocco make sure that in the coming years you will have more doctors? How we make sure that the doctors are well-trained, but also they are motivated to give the uh, right level of services 
to the patients because uh, we are known to have very good doctors and you can find them in every country in the world. I mean, in the US, in, in Germany, one of the, the best, you know, a cancer doctor in Germany is Moroccan, uh, you know, and, but we don't have a system today to make sure that we get them motivated. So one of the things that needs to happen, for example, on this front, is really giving uh, medical coverage to, to the population. Today, just to give you a sense, out of 35 million Moroccans, uh, we have 19 million that are covered. So we need to do much more. It's two-thirds of the population that has medical coverage. If you give medical coverage to everyone and then you allow them to go to the public sector or to the private sector, we have a strong private sector, then uh, the, and, and you pay the public sector a fixed fee, fixed salary, but also you give him an incentive to, uh, you give them a variable incentive for any uh, medical act they do, then it's a way of motivating them. Third, that should happen is uh, we need to have to invest hugely in digital infrastructure. You know, the uh, fiber optics, because tomorrow, if you want to have a real telemedicine or teleeducation, then you need to have a, a two ways kind of communication. And this is not going to happen without fiber optics. It can happen also through what we call now VDSL, which is a type of victorial, uh, and we call it, you know, victorial ADSL, you know, where you can go uh, to 20 megabytes, for example, which will allow you to do, to have some uh, value added services, but fiber optic is key. And the second thing that is very important on digital side of, of course, is regulation. If you have incumbents and we have that, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, the, uh, ATAT of the words uh, when, when you started years back. And uh, here, for example, we have Maroc Telecom and uh, it has all the uh, Cooper network, but it's, uh, it doesn't want to share it with the others. So if you want to have these fiber optics everywhere, and if, then they need to start sharing infrastructure to lower the cost. Fourth is really manufacturing. Uh, I strongly believe that there is a huge opportunity for Africa in developing, you know, its manufacturing capabilities. And we haven't seen, I mean, I don't believe that people, you know, this leapfrog theory that uh, you can go to services, uh, you were in agriculture-based economies, then now we can go to services. I mean, people will still need to consume goods, you know, products. And given the fact that Africa has a uh, young population, given the fact that the cost of living is lower, given the fact we have competitive advantages in manufacturing products, and we have shown it in Morocco. Just to give you a sense, Morocco today, the, uh, in Q1 2018, the exports of our automotive industry exceeded the exports of phosphates. So it showed that when you concentrate on specific things, and you bring all the resources, then you can really make a difference. So manufacturing has to happen. Fifth thing that uh, Africans have to do 
is really uh, better, and it's linked to this fourth one. It's really how we can integrate better, but by political reconciliation. And here I am talking about really the, the problem that we have with Algeria. I mean, if you take the uh, what we call the UMA, uh, l'Union du Maghreb Arabe, which is the Maghreb Union, only 2% of the trade of this region is happening internally. So imagine what a lost opportunity it is. It's like 2% growth for us in GDP growth for us and for Algeria every year that is lost because we're not talking to each other, because we are not doing things together. Last but not least, in Africa side, governance. We need to improve governance. We need to make sure that the partners understand that our governance is on par with their own governance. Well, that's a very thoughtful strategy. What do you need from the rest of the world to help make it happen? Uh, if we do this, especially on the governance side, then the rest of the world will believe that we are a trusted partner and that uh, we they can invest in Africa and also they can help us. And I have been, uh, before I was the uh, ambassador of Morocco to the European Union, and I have been calling for a Marshall Plan for Africa. And uh, this Marshall Plan for Africa uh, is even today more relevant than it was before. So if you're asking me what other countries can do for Africa today, well, first of all, debt, public debt cancellations, it has started. I mean, I'm sure that the, they have been talking about this, uh, and, uh, but they are talking about the le least advanced countries. I believe that it should be extended to even countries like Morocco. Financial aid and also really direct investments that can happen here in Africa. Let me pull on that string and let me pull on it pretty hard. It's imaginable that that will completely exhaust their capacity and possibly their willingness to worry about the world outside Europe or the world outside the United States. So you have the challenge, you have the need for a Marshall Plan, but you have the challenge that the potential funders of that plan are headed in other directions. How do you overcome this turning inward that seems so pervasive in so many, so many capitals today? Uh, you're right, Alan. Uh, uh, and, and at the end, you cannot blame them for taking care of their own people at start. So we have to do our own part. And as I explained to you, we're not going to stay put and wait for them to come and help us. We are mobilizing, as I explained to you, resources that are far away from the... Uh, the numbers you announced, for example, here in Morocco, we are, talk, we are thinking about 200 billion dirhams, which is $20 billion, $20 billion to uh, allow us to invest in key areas that hopefully will help us to uh, strengthen, boost the economy, uh, to uh, fight these inequalities I was talking about. But at the same time, uh, we are having some discussions with the IMF 
with the World Bank, we're having with the uh, other international financial institutions, we're having uh, discussions with the EU. And we are trying to make the case that this is a worldwide problem. <laughs> I think that everyone understands now, you know, that if something happens in China or in another place, then you affect all the economies. So you cannot have wealth in one part and you can become an island, a wealthy island, and you have poverty surrounding you. And my uh, perception at this point in time is that Europeans understand that. So uh, because, you know, they have seen huge illegal migrants, number of illegal migrants arriving to their shores, and they understand that they need to also create wealth in surrounding countries. So my perception is that once this first phase is done, once they, they relaunch their economies, uh, then they might look at the second item on the agenda, which is how we can also help the surrounding countries. Third, and this is a huge opportunity for us, you know, deglobalization, <laughs> is not going to happen overnight. But for sure, when you have the value chains that are disseminated as they were uh, before the crisis, and you have manufacturing plants stopping net because, you know, part in manufacturing plant far away from home has closed its doors, then I believe that regional integration will be such an obvious choice. So my, I am expecting us to benefit from this relocalization, relocation of uh, some manufacturing activities that were happening in China or in, in the Far East, and uh, they, they will bring it closer to Morocco, and Morocco has a good opportunity to, to say it. The other thing, where I see huge opportunity for us is on the energy side. We have one of the best spots in the world for solar energy, for wind energy, and we can use the solar energy and wind energy to produce electricity that Europe might need because they are talking about green Europe, but also uh, to do the uh, power to X, to hydrogen or to ammonia. And this is also something that is needed by the Europeans. So, you know, the uh, picture is not bleak, is not bright. The, the European help uh, will be appreciated. Let me use that, though, to segue to climate. Uh, I know that both in your council and you personally are deeply devoted to climate change mitigation. Uh, that you've done a lot of work on it, and indeed, uh, in the next years, are aiming the council at thinking deeply about not just the problem, but far more importantly, the solutions. How confident are you that the pace of global warming, of radical climate change, can be slowed during this decade? Well, first of all, I am an optimistic type of guy, you know, so I do believe that it has taken the world a lot of time to come to the conclusion that this planet has to be preserved and uh, that there is no other way than to come together and work together to uh, mitigate the climate change. And this has really taken, 
you know, real status with the uh, Paris Agreement. Unfortunately, some countries, and maybe not some countries, but uh, some leaders in the world uh, do not have the same understanding, do not have the same position, but no one is eternal. No one is for, you know, except God, as you know. So hopefully all will come together to act swiftly and strongly uh, to make sure that it doesn't become inhabitable as a planet. We are experiencing a dramatic decline in emissions at the moment. The year will probably produce something it is estimated like a 7 or 8% uh, decline in emissions. But we did it the wrong way. We did it by shutting down the global economy, causing enormous distress, as you discussed, uh, and raising more problems than, than solutions. The question, very precisely, do you think in your optimism that leaders will look around and say, we know we can do it, but we also know this was the wrong way to do it. So now we need to accelerate the right ways to do things and, and really move much more aggressively on mitigation to achieve the halving of emissions that we know has to be done by 2030. The answer is yes, Alan. And uh, in fact, <laughs> with the, the COVID, will we'll be an eyes opener. This is a global crisis. And there is no way you can handle it by yourself. So it really shows that when you have a global crisis, if we don't come together, then everyone will lose at the end. We are sharing absolutely the same destiny. And when you have a global crisis, there are no winners and no losers. I believe that just like we did on nuclear weapons, you know, a long time ago, you know, because there was a threat through the world security, then uh, we'll come together on this climate crisis challenge. Now, for sure, the, uh, there are already some proofs about that. When the Europe has announced the Green Deal, and when you know that you know, a few years down the road, because it's not 10, 15 years, it's not long way you know, ahead, that Germany doesn't want to be a CO2-free emitter then uh, they have to invest on that. And investment might come locally. And this is where, you know, we have to think about uh, uh, electric mobility, clean mobility. You have to talk about storage technologies. You have to think about hydrogen, uh, desalination. So all these things will come because there will be a lot of innovation there but also they can do it with the help of other countries. And this is where I believe we have a role to play. This is, I believe, where geopolitics will also be affected because today maybe the Europeans look at Morocco sometimes just like a partner that, uh, you know, doing, that is modernizing, that shared, shares values, uh, but mainly we are protecting them against you know, migration, illegal migration. We are a good partner on security uh, issues. But tomorrow we'll be, you know, one of the best partners on energy supplies. Big thanks to this, you know, wind and solar energy that I was talking about. Just for, to give you a sense, today we can have 
wind electricity for less than two cents per kilowatt hour. So this is going to happen on the mitigation side. What worries me more is the adaptation side. And adaptation side, unfortunately, Africa, that has the least responsibility in climate change, is the, the continent that is affected more you know, by climate change. We will have huge migration. We're talking about tens of millions of people that will be forced to leave the areas where they are living because it's going to be too hot for them. I mean, they will die if they stay there. We are talking about flood. I mean, even today, there are cities in Senegal that are seeing, you know, such an increase in the level of water that people are thinking about migrating from there. So the, the uh, land uh, will not be, uh, you know, uh, as a, a resource to grow food on it. So all those things, you know, are very impactful. And Africans will not have the resources to fight those effects that were created somewhere else. The last and most important question, perhaps, uh, is leadership. How do we get better leaders? Because absent better leaders, we will fail to grasp these opportunities and we will be overwhelmed by the challenges. Where does the leadership come from? Uh, leadership has to come from the people, my friend. I mean, unfortunately, and I am seeing it here in Morocco, but, uh, you know, I can relate to also what's happening in different countries where basically the citizens don't trust the leaders anymore for different reasons. I'm not going to go into that. But what I, am, what I usually tell people when I'm hearing this, I say, well, please come and join us. Be part of, you know, the party because it's too easy to criticize. I mean, here in Morocco, for example, just to give you a sense, we have 24 million people in age of voting. 8 million people are not even listed on the uh, elections you know, list, are not registered on the election list. 8 million are registered, but they do not vote, and 8 million only vote. And then when you have 8 million people that vote, well, then you can have any party that comes to, uh, you know, lead the government. And uh, this type of percentage is very low here, but it's not much greater in so many other countries in the world. So the smart people of the world go elsewhere than politics. At the end of the day, the politicians will run the show. And if you want to have strong leaders, then you need to make sure that People will come, will join, as I said, the party, and they will tomorrow hopefully be in charge of leading the countries and to take the right decisions. So that's one piece of the, the answer. The second piece of the answer, you can overcome a little bit this problem by having a more citizenship, a citizen-centric approach. I believe in citizen-centric you know, approaches. Basically, it's the representative democracy plus, and I'm not saying versus because I don't believe in, you know, in opposing those two, uh, participative democracy. So if you listen, if you have processes, you have approaches 
that listen to citizens uh, in the conception. So you do, you know, joint conceptions of public policies, then you might get much smarter, you know, designing those policies. You can then, because you are using collective intelligence, smartness to bring those policies, the world, to your countries and, and to the world. So by hearing the citizens' voices, by incorporating their suggestions, then uh, I believe we can get smarter and we can have better policies. And thank you very much for this conversation. And thank you also for your leadership in Morocco and in Africa. Hey, my pleasure, Alan. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments and please subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.